Um, I'm really glad that I did. Obviously, God is a lot better. I was telling um, Josh this. God is much better at planning and at making things happen far more than I am. Um, in fact, I realize how incredibly awful I am at those things. Um, how many of you have ever made a plan that you're going to go to bed at a certain time? Yeah, okay. I don't need to ask any further questions, I think. I think we know how that goes. Um, but this morning, we're going to uh, move somewhat quickly, although I do have a fair amount of time, so that's good. Um, through Philippians chapter 1, we're going to be starting off here in verse 15, and we're going to go through verse 21. Um, I hope that you, like myself, have been enjoying the, this constant theme of joy here throughout Philippians and the understanding from the very beginning, and I'm going to do a little bit of recap just to catch up everybody as to where we are, but the simple understanding that joy is not dictated by our circumstance. We mentioned it a little bit here this morning in the Sunday school as well, but the joy of a Christian, the joy that Christians have received by the Spirit of God is not something that is going to be dictated by our circumstance. Um, and again, sensitive subject, but I'm always good on that. Um, in the Sunday school, if you weren't there, I, I mentioned that regardless of how you feel about what happened in the elections and the voting process on Tuesday or Wednesday, and I made the joke about in Florida still figuring it out, right? Whatever it is that you feel about that, you should still retain your joy, even if you're not happy. The joy of God, the joy of Christ, the joy of salvation remains, even if things do not go your way in life, even if things are not perfect. We look biblically and we see constantly things from our perception that are going incredibly wrong, but yet we still see incredible amounts of joy and we know that God is still in all of these different circumstances. It amazes me at times... When circumstances arise and I can look and say, this, either this isn't fair, or God obviously wouldn't want this to happen, or whatever the situation is, to start to complain or to murmur, as we see so often. And then all the time when reading these biblical stories, we can look and we see how God has been faithful through it all, how he has worked in all things, and how it comes to an end. And we can sit and say, man, if they had just believed these things in the beginning and all the way through, they'd have been fine. But yet how often when a circumstance comes my way, I'm quick to complain, I'm quick to murmur, I'm quick to completely lose sight of these things. Um, look at what God did in the Exodus, and then compare that to our present situation. God is absolutely able to overcome all of those things. So here in Philippians, we have the, the Apostle Paul writing to a church, writing to the different members of this church, and he's, he's in prison, he's chained to one of the guards, again, about 18, 24 inches away, constantly being in chains with them and writing to them of these incredible encouragements. These people were reaching out to him to check on his well-being, knowing that he is in prison, having great concern and great love for him, reaching out to see how things are going. And he's writing to them. We'll just quickly go through a few of these verses in verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, reminding them that Christ has begun a good work and he is absolutely certain to bring it to completion. God is not a God who starts things and stops, a God who starts and forgets to finish it or decides I'm going to make something different, I'm going to change what I'm doing, but he brings it to completion. He says in verse 8 that he greatly longs to be with them, and in verse 9 he prays that their love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment or discernment, that you may approve the things which are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, 
being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. And then he continued down through verses 12 through 14, talking about in verse 12 that all of those things which had happened to him, he's not complaining. We don't find him saying, man, I've been in prison for this long. Um, This guard is actually really rough with me. He just yells at me all the time. Um, The food is terrible, right? I don't have any time for, for working out or for all these different things. He's not complaining about being in chains. But what is it instead that he says in verse 12? I wish I would that you should understand, saying, listen to me, this is important, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. He says, man, all of these things have happened, but there's no reason to complain because it is these things that have served to advance and to further the gospel. And you'll remember that the understanding of often we look at Paul being imprisoned and being chained to these guards and mentioning how, man, that guard was also chained to Paul, right? It's not, I'm locked in here with you. Paul's saying, you're locked in here with me, and you're not going anywhere. you got six hours until the next guard comes in, and you are going to hear gospel. You're going to hear truth. You're going to hear about what Christ did. You will hear all of these things, as opposed to sitting there saying, I really need to get out of here so I could actually share the gospel with someone. And mentioning how if I were to be imprisoned today for whatever the case may be, Assuming it was a, a righteous reason. I think it would be. I hope it would be. I hope it would be. I am no less a minister of the gospel or a faithful servant just because you're in prison for these different things, where no longer would I be preaching on a Sunday morning at a church, but could also be doing so in the jail, day in, day out, each and every hour, with a small understanding of what it is that God is doing. So then we find ourselves here in verses 15 through 21 this morning. It says, Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach preach Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, And therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to to me to live is Christ, And to die is gain. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the incredible work of of Christ on the cross. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that so many here have received the gospel by your grace. God, I pray that as we look here in these, these six verses, as Paul is writing to the church, that we try to try to take out all distractions and things that we may be concerned with as we've come in, but pray that we would have attention for your word, that we would seek after you, that you would reveal yourself to us, and again, that we would constantly be giving you all of the honor and all the glory and all that we do. We ask these things in the name of your, your perfect Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
So now we're sliding back up here to verses 15 and 16. Where after he closes about how all of these things have served to advance the gospel, and many more, many of his brethren are bold to speak the word without fear, giving credit to his situation for how so many are able to now overcome their fears. They're speaking the gospel boldly. He says in verse 15, Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. We've noted how much support Paul had received from so many people, especially the Philippians. They had, they had served to support him in financial ways, in prayer, in so many different situations. But now we're saying that, hey, maybe not all people supported Paul. Um, this was not a perfect ministry of acceptance in all places. It is not as if everywhere Paul went, he was warmly greeted, um, given a bed, given hugs, given money. Um, we often see him in very dire circumstances of people awaiting his arrival to either beat him or to have him arrested. Paul was not supported by all men. So if anyone here at this point through Philippians was thinking that Paul was constantly regarded with this high, high level of acceptance or esteem, we're now seeing that some, were, some who were even preaching, these are others in the church, were preaching of Christ, but were doing so out of jealousy and envy and of strife. This is similar to those who are in the church who would be preaching actively against the ministry of another preacher, of those just simply out of jealousy, of being upset of the success of another church. And as much as I would love to say this was just in this one context and that never happens now, um, that would be absolutely untrue to say. People seeing the success of the ministry of Paul, the faithfulness in which he served the Lord, of being in bonds and yet continuing to be faithful, that caused many, even orthodox teachers here, he does not say that they were teaching false things. There's not a mention that these are heretics that are doing so. He is saying these people are preaching Christ, but yet the flaw is in their motives. They're doing it out of jealousy, out of envy, out of strife. So often what can happen is we have poor motives, even though we're doing the right thing. Many of us have had these conversations um, both with ourselves, with other people, um, so often we talk about it's not just doing the right thing, but it's doing it for the right reasons, right? Having pure motives. Um, we look at Saul and his desire to offer sacrifice to God back in 1 Samuel 15, and we say, what's wrong with that? He knows he's supposed to offer sacrifices. Um, that was a good thing for him at the time, you would have thought. And yet Samuel rebukes him by saying, why didn't you obey? Obedience is better than, than the blood of of rams better than sacrifice. Obedience to God is more important than just doing something that is right. Why is it that anyone here attends church on a Sunday morning? For some people, it's out of a, a societal pressure because of the context you're in. For some, it's family pressures, and you just know it's the right thing to do, so you go ahead, you get up, and you do it. There, there's not too much credit that is given just for doing something out of obligation. Just doing it because you have to. This is what we see so often um, in the Old Testament as well as in the New, these things that are being refuted is it's not just doing it for the sake of doing it, but having motives that are, that are true and that are good and what is the purpose behind it. Because the burden of obligation in so many different ways is so much more law than it is gospel and than it is grace. These are individuals that are preaching Christ but are doing so with envy and doing so out of jealousy 
And so Paul is making mention of this, not to gain any sort of sympathy. He's not, he's not doing this so that people will just feel bad for him, but he's emphasizing here the understanding of the right motive and what it is that we do. Um, I think there's, I can speak for some of us, but maybe I'll just speak for myself. There are times that we catch ourselves in our motives and go, hold on a second. Let me make sure I'm doing this for the right reason. Um, and when you catch that, um, we, we understand kind of how that situation goes. But catching those things as it comes up. The church came to have um, detractors for those that were speaking against the person of Paul. We see him here again mentioning that they are preaching Christ, but they are doing so, even in verse 16, the one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. This is trying to place more discomfort and affliction upon Paul, They're of those being jealous of his ministry and seeking to preach against him. We see this refuted in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where some are claiming Apollo, some Peter, some Cephas, some all of these other ones. Seeing a success of a church, we see this now of pastors who, who preach Christ, and they're all orthodox, but they see success of another church, and they get jealous and say, man, I want to be the most successful in this area. I want to be the biggest. I want to do all of these different things. I want to have everything else. Imagine holding those motives while preaching or with orthodox teaching who Christ is, what he has done, and all that he is. Imagine how these things, how you can hold these things in different hands. They're preaching Christ from envy and from strife. Envy is depriving of others of what is rightfully theirs. In Matthew, or excuse me, in the book of Luke, it says that envy is what led the Jews to hand Jesus over to Pilate, right? Because of their envy, they handed him over. Envy, depriving others of what is rightfully theirs. Strife being jealousy. I think both of us understand, um, we understand both of these concepts very well. I think it's safe to say we've all experienced jealousy at some point in our lives. Um, any of you that were not an only, if you were an only child, you probably never understood it. But if you had siblings, jealousy is rampant in the house. Um, less so for me because I was the youngest, so I always had more than my older brothers, because I'll continue to say this. If you are the youngest, you are the favorite. That is absolutely certain. Okay? And the oldest sibling knows that to be true. But Paul here is not noting these things again to build up sympathy for the importance of the right motives. Ministry based on motives of self-interest or jealousy is only going to bring resentment when others are successful in it. Resenting the success of another church. Self-interest in your motives. Should this church here, Glenwood Springs Baptist Church, not rejoice and be incredibly happy, thankful, and praising God for the success of good churches in this area? Should we not be praying for this valley to be reached with the gospel rather than just having to have them attend our church? Is it not a corporate, this understanding of a, a community project of bringing salvation and bringing the glory of God throughout more than just this one local church? We are all part of the church. The same way that we don't look back at the success of different churches in the Bible and get jealous and say, no, they weren't us. Right? You rejoice in it because we're all part of the same body. Again, there's not a whole bunch of bodies going to be up there in heaven, right? From beginning to end, joined as one body. That's the unity that we see so often in the book of Ephesians. So he says, some are preaching out of contention. We can all understand that that is not ideal. But then he says, and some out of goodwill. Again, this is the motive of the best interest of others. These were the ones that preached 
out of love. And we can go and we can look in 1 Corinthians 13. We can look at what it is that love is. How love never fails. How it is all of these different things. And we have a good understanding of love. And we'll actually look at this a while later. Some are preaching Christ out of contention. And yet some are preaching out of love. Paul had detractors of his ministry. We can look now at the ministry of Paul and the life of Paul and see how faithful and successful he was in ministry, and yet he had those that were speaking out against him, even those that also were in the church. This should not come as a shock to any one of us when that happens today. But Paul, again, is not complaining. He is simply showing the importance here of the motive. He says that he is set for the defense of the gospel. At his conversion in Acts chapter 9, Jesus is appointed Paul to be a minister. He has commissioned him. He has called him to be a minister, not just to the Jew, but to the Gentiles. This is a monumental shift in everything that was taking place here. And then we see what he says here in verse 18. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. He says, in spite of some speaking against him, as well as him being in prison, he is rejoicing. I understand that for many of us, that doesn't make much sense, right? That's not usually our first response. It may not have been his initial, but it is definitely the one that he trusted in and he held resolve with. He is rejoicing in prison. He is rejoicing as even those who are supposed to be sharing in these afflictions with him that are speaking against him, but he rejoices because Christ is being preached. He is completely removing himself, not seeking self-interest, but knowing, hey, it's not ideal, but Christ is being preached, and that's the goal in all circumstance. So for him, Christ being preached was going to be enough. He says in verse 19, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. In spite of these great trials and circumstances, Paul continues to rejoice. And the beauty of knowing that the Word of God is not written here by Paul, it is by inspiration of the Spirit, is that when it says that he is rejoicing, this is not when some of us, when asked, how, how are you doing? And we go, really good, when really it's really kind of terrible. This is not this, this myth or this false understanding. This is not just putting on a good show. This is the Spirit of God, and God is the author who is nothing but truth, he cannot tell a lie. So when it says that he is rejoicing, we know for certain there is rejoicing going on here. And it's not because Paul is better than any one of us. It's not because Paul is so incredible. And man, if we could have the faith like Paul, if we could be like Paul, we would be wonderful. It's Paul simply saying, I'm rejoicing because of Christ, because of the gospel, because of his work, because of all of these things. We remember when Paul lists his whole resume where he could take all glory in himself and says, I count it all as dung. It is worthless. Exchanging it all for the glory of Christ. In spite of all of these trials and his circumstances, Paul is rejoicing. He cites joy even in death. 
just as long as the gospel of Christ is, is glorified and magnified. That verse 20, as he closes, so now also Christ be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. This is not an understanding of this kind of signaling, this virtuous understanding of, well, as long as he's magnified in my death, this is true desire that even if it is magnified in my death, then let it be so, I will rejoice in these things. This is a, a spirit that we have seen from so many martyrs throughout all of church history of knowing that Christ will be magnified whether in life or in death. And I mentioned last week, I, I can sometimes fall into this false understanding that I'm most effective for the gospel and for a defense of, of Christ in my life as opposed to my death. And I'll tell you, this, that's a massive and monumental change in the way that you perceive the things that you do along with your own worth of self. It is very, very possible that Christ will be more honored and glorified in my death than he ever will be in my life. And these are things that so many martyrs throughout so many different times would, would love to be able to testify to, and we understand these different circumstances. We've all heard the stories. We see the story of Jim Elliott. Some of you know of the missionary going and um, quickly being killed by those that he has sought to minister to. And years later, his family returning to that same place, understanding continuation of the gospel is more important than harboring any bitterness. It, it is incredible this understanding that we see here. Imagine if all of Christ's people or those who claim to be would hold this understanding that as long as Christ is magnified, whether it is in my life or in my death, as long as he is magnified, I am going to rejoice. Imagine if all of God's people truly felt that way. There would be no fear in evangelism. There would be no question of evangelism. It would be absolutely be a must. There's no fear of rejection, no fear of persecution understanding that if that is the cost, it is a cost you are willing to pay. And then in verse 21, and this is where I say that the God is far greater at planning things and, and ordaining things than I ever can be. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We understand that for the Christian, death is gain. We gain far more than we could ever seek to accrue, to acquire here in this time. And it's, it's something that as a, as a younger person, and especially as a teenager, it's something that you hear and you, you, know, you continue on with this understanding of, I'm a teenager, I'm invincible, right? Um, the new head coach over at the high school for basketball, he and I were talking about this the other day of realizing some of the kids got into a fight, surprise, um, but talking about you realize how invincible these kids really think that they are. The way that they drive, the way that they act, the way that they do the things that they do, thinking that completely invincible. Paul here is making it very clear, while in the midst of very difficult circumstance, saying that for him to live is Christ, because if there is no Christ, there is truly no life. We know that he is the only one who is life, and it is by his death and his resurrection that anyone truly tastes any life. 
We know that apart from Christ, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. There is no sleepiness. There is no kind of half dead, half alive. You are absolutely dead. The only way that a person ever comes to life is through Christ. And he is saying this while in the midst of his bad circumstance. He's not sitting up in his tower saying, while everything is great, well, even if it gets bad, you need to still rejoice in the things of God. You still need to have that joy. This is some of the worst situations that he was ever going to be in in his life so often, and yet he continues to have this firm resolve and consistency. He talks about deliverance, and that some commentators say that this is vindication before Caesar, granting him a release from prison. Uh, knowing Paul, he's far more concerned with just getting out of a tight space, right? Um, the word that's used in deliverance by him is soteria, which is where we get soteriology, which is in reference to salvation. Understanding salvation here, he knows that he is going to be delivered, not just out of prison, but understanding his deliverance from sin and from death. Now, we could take a poll here and say, if, if we are in prison, would you rather be released from that prison, be delivered out of that jail from the jailer, or would you rather be eternally delivered from sin and from death and from wrath of God? We could take a quick poll, and I'm pretty sure that any reasonable people here would say, hey, I'll take the eternal deliverance, and I'll embrace these chains and wear them proudly and rejoice. I mean, Paul sits here in his prison, chained to a guard, and says, yeah, I'm in chains now, but I know the deliverance that awaits me, and it's because of that that I rejoice, whether in life or in death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Verse 23, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. He is outlining for them the truth that dying is a gain because he would be in the presence of God. These are truths that completely embody themselves in his ministry where fear of imprisonment, fear of rejection, for Paul, at least, neglecting ministry for those reasons was not going to be enough. The fear of, well, what if I get thrown in jail? That was not enough for Paul to close his mouth of the gospel. It was not enough for him to avoid so many circumstances. And so this morning we see as Paul continues to outline these things, and soon we're going to get a little bit out past um, what it is that he's mentioning here, and we're going to see there in chapter 2 so many beautiful things about Christ and the incarnation, and as he comes down and lives a perfect and sinless life. But as he closes out chapter 1, continuing on, of let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. And in nothing be terrified by your adversaries. Paul, in the midst of, of having adversaries, of having people come and desire to offer him afflictions, of, of speaking out against him, of detractors, he stands boldly and says, it is all for the glory of Christ. It is for the gospel to move forward. I, 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 he, basically, he doesn't care. We'll just shorten that up. He doesn't care. It's not enough for him to not do it. For him to live as Christ and to die is gain. We can, we can offer up a survey to the entire country now and to say, hey, would you rather live or would you rather die? And which is there more gain? 
People spend their whole life trying to acquire things that they can never take with them when they die. We all understand this, some of us far more than others. This is why we don't lay up, we don't try to acquire treasures right now, things where moth and things can destroy. Continue to rejoice even in the midst of trouble, in the midst of your circumstance. God is far greater than your circumstance. And there's no, well, you don't know what my circumstance is. It doesn't matter. God is far greater than your circumstance. And if things are going incredibly well for you right now, praise God that it is going well and receive those blessings with gladness. And when things are going absolutely terrible, and it's probably the worst situation you've been in, praise God for who he is and for those things and receive that suffering and those struggles with gladness, knowing that he is working all things for the good of those who love him. And he is producing in you this obedience, which is growing your firm trust and reliance upon him. Do not look upon suffering and act as if God is absent. This is what we discussed in the Sunday school. Whether things are perfect or things are awful, God is still present. He is the same God yesterday, today, and forever, even in life, the same as he is in death. Except in death, we, we realize that so much more fully. And that is the day that we anticipate of seeing him seated on the throne, being able to offer praises with all people, all of his children for all of eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the truth of, of eternity. Thank you for seeing so clearly in your word that for us to truly live is Christ and that for your, for your children to die is gain. We thank you that now we've received you by your grace, that those who have trusted in you for salvation have received you and received your spirit and, and look forward and we hold great hope and great confidence and comfort in the things that are to come. We thank you that even in such a, a short time within the scope of our week, in such a, a few small sentences here in your word, that we see the fullness of the joy that comes with knowing you as our Savior. The joy that comes of, of knowing that this world is temporary, that this life is temporary, that this body that is tired and that is broken and continues to fade away, that we know that you will make all things new, and we look forward to that day. But God, as we saw this morning in the Psalms, pray that while we are here and while we still have breath, that that is the message that we carry forth to others, that we are all ministers of the gospel, that is not a, a task reserved simply for pastors or those in official full-time ministry, but that those who are called by your name would share you and share the gospel with those that are around them. We thank you for giving us the spirit to give us the encouragement and the boldness to speak without fear, knowing that the perfect love that we have received from you casts out that fear. And I pray that for those here this morning, that we would speak your name courageously, that we would speak it boldly, and that we wouldn't seek to 
find success in our own efforts or in our own abilities, understanding that all the gifts that we have received come from you, and it's for the purpose of, of building up your church and making you known. God, we thank you this morning for all that you are and all that you will forever be. We ask that you would continue to strengthen us. We thank you for the giving of your church, for the mutual edification that takes place here as your people as we gather together. I pray that in this short time before the memorial service, that in our conversations it would be edifying of talking of the things of you, of rejoicing in, in trials as well as in the blessings. God, we thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for all that you continue to do. And we rest confidently in the promise that all that you have begun, you will complete. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.